not saying this works this well every time, but five years of chronic lower back pain, I do believe it was tying in the shoulder with the hip that made the biggest difference. And he's been reporting back to me this week, just, uh, just doing these runs without any back pain. And it was just as simple as starting to learn to lead with that shoulder. Yeah, and one of our favorite secret muscles, right? The QL says, ah, I'm giving up. Let's just, I can't do this. <laughs> Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, good to see you. You're looking lean and fit, and I know you've got a big event coming up, so uh, tell us about it. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, I think it's interesting because you said lean and fit, and oftentimes lately I hear skinny, <laughs> right? <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me how people perceive fitness and, and health, right? Because in the winter, I do get after heavier weights. I do more of my base training. I do some light running, but uh, I do put more of the strength as my focus in those winter months. And so there's a certain amount of, I guess you would say bulking, if you will, that I appear to look a little bit bigger. And then you start to get in your running and you start to emphasize more of that. And of course, sure, you start to get a little bit more streamlined. I prefer to think of myself as lean and mean, baby, lean and mean. But, uh, you know, it's like I say, it's kind of interesting where some people will look at you thinking that if you are not as big, oh, geez, what's happened there? Have you been sick? Are you uh, like, no, oh, okay, I'm great. You know, I'm yeah, feeling yeah. fast and free, baby. So you know, very interesting to me, yet I was just telling you before the podcast started that uh, with the sled, I've been doing some pretty heavy pulls and pushes, some good concentric work, getting ready for the relay, and my strength is certainly uh, there. It's not maxed out like it was a few months ago, but I've, I've retained a lot of my strength in this process, and I'm always experimenting with that on my own guinea pig and seeing how strong that I can, or main gain, in other words, what I can uh, hold on to that strength as much as possible as I am heading towards my race. And so that's uh, that's always kind of fun for me, that process. But uh, yeah, when I get leaner, I guess because I'm taller too, then uh, people think I've been sick or something. But I, I feel great and uh, I feel lean and mean, so I, I feel ready. Oh, that's fantastic. I have an old friend, Bruce Fordyce, who's won the Comrades Marathon nine times, that 55-mile jaunt in South Africa <laughs> that, that they do every year, that, you know, yeah, 15,000, 20,000 people do every year. Fantastic race. Uh, but when, whenever you would arrive at the hotel before the race, you'd go, Bruce, you look like shit. You must be really fit. <laughs> you know? So it's like completely gaunt and so on. And just on the flip side of that, you know, Bruce is a string bean of a man, is a tiny little individual, really, really thin. And, you know, if people know you're going to be running 50K. You're basically running 30 miles, um, uh, ultra marathon type stuff in a relay format. And two days before you are pushing a heavy sled, right? There's not a lot of ultra marathoners out there that are going, huh? That computes completely for me. I got to get back to my sled. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. So my acronym for fit there would be uh, focused intentional technique work tension, right? That's what okay. I want to establish within those 48 hours. And, you know, to be clear, I just did four sets and pulling the sled three yards back and pushing three yards forward. So it's not a lot of work. It's, uh, it's minimal effective dosing for sure. But, you know, I think it's kind of fun to talk about this a little bit for people listening that are curious about um, my intention behind something like that. I've, I've looked at how an athlete prepares or tapers, and if you don't use it, you lose it, so to speak. So it's about coming off of what I was doing, which was 10 sets of that kind of work. So four sets of that work is minimal effective dosing for sure. It's all concentric with this drill that I'm talking about with the sled. That's why I love the sled. If you can get a sled and it doesn't take a lot of yards, I have three yards available in my garage gym. So it is doable and certainly well worth it. There's so much you can do, especially in your sort of championship phase work with the sled that I really like to incorporate because it is all good concentric work there. So uh, yeah, a lot of fun. And I'll report back on how all that's worked for me after after the uh, the event. Um, but I think it's kind of fun too, to just talk about the mindset that I've learned from you behind this, because I have six legs to do. The first leg is arguably the hardest leg, and it's going to be up in the mountains. They actually require you to carry water. It's a little bit more of a grind. It's arduous. You're doing a good three miles of running up, right? And then you have to bomb down. So a lot of breakdown on the way back down. And so that is where you have to be careful. Your first of six legs that you're not overcooking it, you're not overdoing it. So I practiced that leg last week and just to kind of get to know the course, but mainly for my breathing and my mindset. And I just, yeah, right. So I took um, just a couple miles of that course where I said, okay, I'm going to do this at the pace I want. I'm going to check in on my breathing. And then from there, look at what the pace was. And and so I think that that was a win for me because my heart rate was in the 120s. I, I did that at about 126 beats a minute. In other words, knowing that I can maintain that for uh, all six legs for sure. So, um, you know, that's what I'm going to go off of in my first leg. The uh, first time I ever did the Odyssey, I think that year I was able to run the fastest leg four time of the event, but man, was I trashed after that. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, be, it'll be fun to come back with a little bit more experience and uh, learning from you, quite honestly, about leaving the ego at the door a little bit more and uh, having more of that androgynous sort of effect for my racing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, just a much more expansive defensive um, you know, there's, there's just in that series of statements that you made, there's so many, um, you know, core principles that I'd love to ex explore on, on further podcasts, you know, so, so important. Like I had like 10 things to, <clears throat> to question and to ask about that, right. The, the whole pacing concept, uh, setting your knees on downhills, the technique on how to run downhills, not to destroy yourself eccentrically, all of those things, you know, so. Uh, you know, if people are, are, are writing in and, and, you know, giving comments and stuff like that, if any of those resonate for you that you guys would like to hear about, just uh, let us know because, uh, we, you know, we can go down those pathways as, as much as we know. 
yeah, pacing is so important there from, you know, both a mechanical standpoint, uh, nutritional standpoint, recovery standpoint, as well as, as uh, a performance standpoint, right? It's really one of those races where you've got to be thinking of the last leg when you're running the first leg. You just, you've just got to put that in the back of your mind and saying, you know, uh, get through this because, uh, you know, you, you can crush this if you, if it was a one thing, one time thing, but You've got four more to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, last thing I'll say about this, but I just happened to be talking to a guy yesterday that he's doing run for him. So that's awesome to hear. And he actually beat me in a race last year. Uh, and it was interesting because for that race, I was, I was pretty fit. Maybe I'm never completely satisfied with my race readiness probably, but I, I was fit enough, and the first thing in my mind was, well, I'm the defending champion. I've won this race before, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to lead this race. And I have, I'm ranked first, so I should probably be in, in first. And I'm going to, I'm going to be up there. So, anyways, it's it's a long climb at the beginning of this race, and I led it the way that I shouldn't have because <laughs> <laughs> I knew my heart rate was was climbing up too high at parts, but. I was already in the lead in races, trail races, especially I was, we're also on a single track now. So you have to, you have to let the person go ahead of you. If you, if you know that you're not keeping the pace. So I just kept the pace knowing I was going a little hard, hoping I would recover more after. And that really never came. And when it came time, he pulled up beside me and said, Hey, you know, let's work together next few miles. And it wasn't long until he started dusting me. Right. So it was a good it was a good way for me to learn that in in not only the experience side I'm talking about, but also just that with the type of pacing that I was doing at 175 pounds, even when I'm lean, that's my lean weight. And racing against a guy like that who's coming in at about 155 pounds, right? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, um, having the best race for you and knowing what works best for you and, and your current uh, conditions, in, including things like your uh, physiology, your your mechanics, but also looking at just your overall uh, work that you are doing with uh, a race like that, I would have been able to finish much, much faster had I been a little bit more patient in the process in the first few miles and hung back a little bit. So I told him next time, I'm going to be just working behind you because you're the smart one, right? So uh, <laughs> learn the hard way, but it's fun. Yeah, there's just there's just no way around that learning process, and that learning has to be cognitive, right? So we've got responses to stress. We've only got three, right? We can fight, we can fly, or we can freeze. And none of those cover endurance, right? Because endurance is, is like I'm committing to something that's stupid long, and my brain can't wrap its head around it. My life's not in danger. And so ego steps to the fore and says, well, dominate while you can. You know, you're a big 175-pound fit guy. You know, just stamp your authority on this race. And then physiology fights back, right? The realities <laughs> fight back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting. At the beginning of what you said, and this will, uh, and, and we, can, we can go into our core material after this. But at the beginning of what you said, you said you never feel quite fit enough. And I have a, a rule that I have is, is if an athlete feels they they need two or three more weeks of, of pre preparation, then they are perfect. Mm -hmm. They are in the right place to race. You've got to go into the race feeling like I could have done a little bit more, especially with the longer races. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's you know, the it's same. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same principle as if I'd known I was going to go so well today, I would have started off a little faster. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm really glad you brought up that last point because I think well, most of us with performance mindset, we're tough on ourselves and we'll never give ourselves permission to say, yeah, I'm ready, right? That's part of it uh, too. So I, I love what you just said. I'll remember that for this weekend and, and realizing that, yeah, no, actually I'm, I'm, I'm ready. No, no excuses in my mind. And, and also just really enjoy what you did to get there and, uh, and think about that process for the, the success you want that day. Cause you probably are a lot more ready than, than you believe. Right. Yeah. And it reduces expectation. If you feel you could have done a bit more, then you just get off your own case, you know. So it's it's a very complex thing, right? It's it's not only knowing the information, it's internalizing that. That I, by going in a little undercooked, I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm respecting the race. I'm respecting the distance. I know I can't make a lot of mistakes. And when you go in and you feel like you're really, really fit, then you make mistakes, right? Because you think you can overcome them. So you're just a little too aggressive a little bit too cocky and and that kind of thing and 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 nine out of ten times in a long race it bites you in the butt yeah for sure yeah no and so i i think when it comes to you and i talking and and people saying that first of all i i love that we have so many people giving us these testimonials for the podcast what i will say is that i would love to to get some of that um that knowledge out there over the next, especially few months, what we have talked about over the last 10 years. And I tend to have that uh, diarrhea of the mouth, right? Because I really want to share everything that I can. I get so excited, but I am proud of the fact that what I'm hearing is that people are really absorbing what we're talking about and that I think that we are putting this in digestible chunks. But love like you say to to get that feedback from people what we can talk about more to help you and uh yeah don't hesitate to you know even just you can direct message us or you can send us questions on the website there's an email address that uh, i'll return any questions that come out there for you so just go to that but i uh, would love to hear more from you guys get more input on how we can help you guys more and so that being said, I know today we're going to talk a little bit more about the shoulder. I have plenty of stories, even recent uh, uh, situations that I want to talk about that's really helped with the shoulder complex and understanding how we actually lead and, and use our shoulders in our running program. That's fantastic, Matt. And we also decided before the podcast if we would include uh, the arm, right? So we would include the elbows, which are a critical piece of the conversation. We would include the wrists. We would include the hands. And unlike what I've done in the past, I'm going to go through the mechanism thinking of it from a running perspective. I know a lot of our listeners are triathletes, um, but from a running perspective, what happens with the shoulders, the elbows, the wrists, and the hands? Uh, firstly, from a function standpoint, and I know you'll have a lot to add with that, and also just knowing that because of the swim in triathlon, there's a lot more muscle engaged in the shoulders, in the upper body. It also changes uh, what what that runner has to carry, right, um, uh, as a triathlete. So, you know, it lowers the VO2 max. The, the more muscle mass at the top, your power-to-weight ratio changes. That's an, an adaptation phase to go through. 
But I think as a general rule of thumb, and I remember early on in my triathlon coaching days, talking to athletes about what they are doing in the gym in terms of do they need as much pec mass or as much delt mass or as much lat mass uh, as they have to swim to the demands of competition? If they are meeting the demands of competition, should they be developing the size of their pecs and their delts and their lats anymore? Because they're already meeting the demands of competition in the swim and big pecs, big delts, big big lats, etc., are not conducive to to helping them, them them that much in the run because that upper body strength is much more postural, much more from a, a coordination standpoint. So before I jump into how the shoulders, elbows, hands, wrists function, Matt, will you say a little bit more about about that uh, you know requirement of muscle in in the upper body? Yeah, I know that's a great question because when you're talking about the upper body mass, first of all, there is a difference potentially between women and men there, right? And and so we do see that because of our increased levels of testosterone, I'm talking about with men, then we do end up having a little bit more of that uh, androgynous effect where we can put on mass a little bit easier in our upper body. There's more fast twitch there than the lower body. And so there's a few different variables to think about. And if we if we look at the amount of volume we're doing with our upper body, if we are in the pool, then we certainly have to look at focusing a little bit more on our strength in that, I would say, three to maybe seven rep range and just really making sure we're getting in good, focused, intentional technique, torque, and tension there to avoid unwanted mass, right? And so that's one of the things that I would look at with, I'm talking about the major muscle groups and I'm not talking about the little guys. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of doing a lot of accumulation when it comes to the smaller muscles that support our posture, keep our shoulders in good position, et cetera. But when it comes to the chest and the lats and the delts, you know, then we're we're looking at those strength ranges in generally speaking that three to seven rep range, which will really help us to get really strong, but won't add additional mass to our, you know, to our bodies. And when you, when, when you look at that, some people would say, oh, I know, I know somebody who actually got much bigger with say doing five to seven reps and I don't want that. Well, remember as an endurance athlete, and this is really covers the the spectrum for most endurance athletes. There's always outliers, but you're burning so many calories to build on extra mass does take a lot of extra calories, but you know, you can essentially still measure or you can use even the mirror as a good test for that. You know, how how are you coming along and are things staying balanced the way you want them to be? Because you can be, in my opinion, at times too strong. And that, for example, with me would be if I'm getting ready for a sub five minute mile goal, I'm going to do that this year as a goal overall, then I'm really going to push my strength pretty high. So that's, I did my first phase of that this year already. And that is my main goal for a shorter distance. So is that optimal if I were going to try to run my best marathon this year? No, it's, it's not right. So 
um, realizing that I can run pretty optimally for those longer distances, but but choosing there and what kind of uh, size mass do I want for what distance, what goal. Those are all important factors to consider. Um, I believe that's what you're referring to there, Bobby, uh, with the strength training side, right? Yeah, yeah. And also just for people to consider their soma types, right? So of course, obviously form fits function, what you do the most of will be what you get the most from. Um, and when you're in an endurance sport, uh, realizing that, that endurance activities are addictive, but so too are, are strength and condition activities ad- addictive, right? So people can overdo both sides of that. And you've got to keep bringing that conversation back to performance. And then also consider your body type, your somatype, right? Your somatotype. Um, you know, are you more ectomorphic? So in other words, you can do a lot of strength work and stuff like that, and you're not going to put on a lot of bulk. Or are you more uh, mesomorphic, right? So you tend to put on bulk quite easily. Just keep referring back to the demands of competition. You know, what do you need in the swim? What do you need in the run? And then adjust, as you say, the intrinsic muscles, the small muscles, the little guys, as you call them, they are the key bits when it comes to function and it, and it comes to uh, to balance and coordination and all, all those things. But just be aware that from a it you know that endurance is a is a physiological uh, activity, right? And it is dependent on your VO2 max, which is your body's ability to utilize oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute. The bigger that number is, the better. And so avoiding the pitfalls of losing weight to perform, right? But rather having the weight that has you perform optimally is what you're looking for. Just being aware that uh, the more bulk you have, especially in your upper body, which I call non, non-propulsive non mass, uh, you know, that, that reduces your aerobic capacity. So just play that game. And it's, it's not a question of, of uh, just lighter is better but it has to be optimal to the function that you're seeking from that. And then, of course, above function always comes health and well-being. That's, that is the most important key to think about. Yeah, and I think this in itself we should have another podcast on because I'm always talking about the differences between accumulation and intensification and rep ranges and time under tension. And, of course, that's always a fun topic. But I think we could... We could certainly delve into that more. Let's make that a podcast in itself to talk about that because um, I flip the switch a lot of times. We are talking about the shoulder today. So I will say that one of the simplest things that I do like to start with is accumulation for those postural muscles, for the muscles that are more auxiliary, the ones that are going to support our primary muscles because I oftentimes find that especially in the back of their body, they're really under-trained. So the beginning, I do actually uh, look at more accumulation, more muscle endurance for those those smaller muscles, especially in the back of the shoulder, for example. So you know, we can we, we can look at how we can connect the dots a little bit better with strength endurance, being able to hold our posture longer, starting with the basics. Basics are always the best to me. So we will go with accumulation or higher rep ranges when it comes to something as simple as holding a T position when you're laying prone down on the ground, head down, and just holding your arms out to the side like a T, raising them up with maybe two and a half, five pound plates, 
and holding that for a minute. You know, those type of exercises are really important, especially I think to start with for most athletes, because they do tend to be undertrained when it comes to the little guys. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's just, let's get into this, right? So, you know, when we started this series of podcasts, we started with a great toe and there was a reason for that, right? So that big difference between um, running and cycling and swimming in terms of load bearing is, is that on a flat road with the bike, with with the correct tire pressure, the re- rolling resistance is very low. You've got a you've got some air pressure from the front, right? Uh, but you don't have to really combat gravity, all right. And similarly, you're in a very low gravity environment in the pool. You don't have to combat gravity. But in the run, even though your cadence might be ninety steps a minute per foot, right? Of that less than a second that your foot is involved in the entire cycle from from hitting the ground to hitting the ground again, right, which is less than a second, your ground contact time is in the millisecond range, right, you know, 200 milliseconds, somewhere in there, that's when your foot is on the ground. And when you're talking about shoulders, you're talking about hips, you're talking about wrists, any of those things, they basically responding and reacting and acting off impact, right? You go into the ground, everything is determined by the quality and the positioning of that impact, all right? And then how do they, in that whole cascade from impact to midstands to toe off, what is the body doing, right? So the shoulders play this huge part of counteracting and counterbalancing and assisting in that process. So if you think about it, when your foot hits the ground, all right, the opposite shoulder is as far forward as it's going to get, right? Um, and it's it's oscillating through the T-spine if you're doing it correctly, right? So that shoulder is forward, the opposite hip is forward, right? Now, where, where people get confused is, is what is the difference between the central movement of the shoulder moving forward and the peripheral movement of the arm swinging forward, all right? And that's where we got that Velcro drill from. That's where I designed that Velcro drill so that people could tap in to the shoulders or responding to the hips in a contralateral fashion. And then the upper arm and the elbow is responding to the shoulder. So it's not the elbow that leads, although it ends up out in front there, all right? A disconnect is, is when that hand starts to extend when that elbow starts to open up, right? So that shoulder comes forward. Then then we go into the ground, right? And then we want an arc, all right? We don't want a downward movement with the forearm like in sprinters. We want an arc, right? So the arm swings, the elbow swings back, but it's following the shoulder, right? So if you get if you get to the middle, now your shoulders are square, your pelvis is square, you're in mid-stance, right? What then happens is the elbow keeps swinging. It's a longer lever. It keeps swinging backwards. It's taking the forearm, the wrist, the hand with it, all right? But it's going to the side because if it stays on plane, it started in front of your chest, all right? And if it stays on plane, it's going out. And when we're going out, we're disconnecting. How do we get that arm to stay connected, right? It's when the shoulder goes back. Now the arm goes back. It stays on that linear plane, And when we reach terminal extension with the shoulder, the elbow doesn't deflate by letting the forearm go. The elbow stays part of that process, and it now starts pushing the shoulder 
forward. All right. So that that's that connection. So the shoulder is just from from slightly forward to slightly back, and the arm is exaggerating that motion. All right. So the 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 explanation that I probably end up giving most is that imagine if you had to had no lower body, you had no legs, and you had to run with your elbows. They would they your elbows should follow the arc that your knee would follow, right? That's that's the kinetic chain. So if you were running on parallel bars with a with a flat top rubberized and you had some rubber on your elbows, all right? And you went forward with the elbow and you grabbed that parallel bar and then you pulled yourself forward along that bar. That's the plane of the arm. Is there spinal rotation? Yes, there is spinal rotation. But the idea is reach, catch, and then the primary movement is draw the elbow back, but the elbow is following the shoulder back. All right, so that brings us to the wrist and the hand. Just, I think, in case people don't know, when you mentioned the Velcro drill... Yeah, yeah. So the Velcro drill I designed many years ago, actually in the lead up to the London Olympics. I was working with, with an athlete that ended up winning a bronze medal and we were using the Velcro drill at that stage. So you imagine that in the middle of your forearm, you have a piece of Velcro, right? So halfway between your wrist and your elbow, you have a piece of Velcro on the inside of your arm, right? And then you also on the midline of your chest down the side, just just behind your serratus, basically, you have another piece of Velcro that matches this piece of Velcro. So you've got some elbow sticking out the back, and you've got some wrist and hand sticking out the front. So your your arms are forming basically, uh, you know, uh, isosceles triangle, right? So equal angles all around, okay, if you connect your thumb to your shoulder. That's where you stick your arms with the shoulders down to the side of your body. So the Velcro drill is running without your arms. And what that does is it elicits the correct shoulder response. So your shoulders will oscillate. They will reach forward and pull back in correspondence to your opposite hip, right? So left elbow, I mean, left shoulder, right hip, and so on. So when people do the Velcro drill, they connect themselves. They realize they have no arms to counterbalance. They have no arms to correct mistakes that they are making posturally. So they get nicely stacked. Uh, and they feel how the shoulders should function. And then the last part of the Velcro drill is, is they get that rhythm. They see that running. And the beautiful thing about the Velcro drill, people feel terribly uncomfortable. But if they have a poor arm action and you video them from the back, and then they do the Velcro drill where they shut their arms down altogether, they go, oh my goodness, I look so much better without my arms than when I have my arms going. So people visually see, wow, less arms is better, right, than too much arm, all right? So what that does is it stops the elbow oscillating open and closed. It engages the shoulders as they should be engaged because a lot of triathletes tend to want to hold their shoulders square. And I've had countless conversations with coaches like that, you know, like, oh, no, no, your shoulders are square and your arms move off that, but they don't. Shoulder back, shoulder forward, shoulder back, right? Um and then the last part of that Velcro drill where once they have established that connection and they've established that rhythm and that shoulder oscillation, they then loosen the Velcro, but they just follow the shoulders as opposed to oscillating the, up, the arms up and down, either becoming the little drummer boy or pushing the shoulders too far back and becoming the dying quail where they, they're flailing away with their forearms only, right? So those two things, moving the hands down powerfully, 
it's a bad idea, the little drummer boy. And then having those, you know, upper arms all the way back and flailing the, the only the, you know, the forearms behind you, especially with loose wrists, that's a problem, right? So that, that would be the, the Velcro drill addresses and corrects that. So much so that I've had athletes use this mid-race in world championship races, literally going, I feel myself starting to lose it. My arms are coming up. They're off plane. My chin's gone up. I've popped the top. Great way to fix that. Mid-race is Velcro drill. Three or four steps with the Velcro drill. Everything comes together, sets it up nicely, just like set it and forget it with the you know, with the with the cyphoid process, getting that chest down, same thing. Just book, establish, and now your arms are back on plane and they're nice and compact, which is one of the three C's that we are, we are looking for. Yeah, and I, this is um, an example that I would give where just last week I worked with a guy using run form, but he haps, happens to be a local local guy. So I, I, I worked with him, just kind of looked at some basic things with his, his gait, but seeing that he wasn't actually leading with his left shoulder. Now he had right lower back pain. So he was lacking that hip extension. Now learning to lead with that left shoulder and giving him some drills to work on there. I'm not saying this works this well every time, but five years of chronic lower back pain I did have him do some specific drills like a reverse clamshell for his lower back, but I do believe it was tying in the shoulder with the hip that made the biggest difference. And he's been reporting back to me this week, just uh, just doing these runs without any back pain. And it was just as simple as starting to learn to lead with that shoulder. So it's a lot, I bring this up because it's a lot more important, I think, than people realize. And quite honestly, it wasn't until my work with you that I realized how important it was to really get that shoulder so enriched with the rest of your chain, get that leading. Yeah, and one of our favorite secret muscles, right? The, the, the QL. The QL is lost without a, a shoulder hip connection it's completely lost it can't do its job you know if you if you, you know if you've got that that chest you know uh posteriorly rotated the ql says ah I'm giving up just i can't do this <laughs> and that's uh quadratus lumborum uh, people who are unaware of the ql it's a hip hiker but also when those qls work together it's also a spinal erector so doing a lot of good work there through the QL. But uh, yeah, that's that's what we're referring to there when it comes to to your QL and uh, and working through that chain, following your hip to your shoulder. You can kind of connect the dots there on, on why it's so important that we're actually setting the position initially in that direction with that forward or that leading shoulder, I should say. And that helps to wind uh, up the 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 connective chain if you will or in other words we're talking about arm chain today but starting with the arm chain i think in our minds is going to be um uh, really hard to to do so what i encourage people to look at or to do is listen to all of our podcasts put up and now it should really start connecting if you've been listening to all yeah, it's important back to the old 3D conversation, right? That when it comes to shoulders, it's a dynamic stack. It's a moving stack, right? So there's that X position where the left shoulder's forward and, and, and the right hip is forward. 
and then the opposite of that. So there's that X crossover, Serapi, spiral line. A lot of that is involved in shoulder awareness and shoulder control. So anytime you see a video, part of my analysis tool at the moment is, is just getting up on a step stool, putting, putting my iPhone in slow-mo above the athlete's head so that I can see the shoulders and the arms from, from above. And you can pick up asymmetries. You can pick up which shoulder is oscillating correctly, which one is not. Is there a difference between them? Are they too static? Uh, are they shifting from side to side? In other words, athletes using too much form power to stay on top of their pelvis. All of those things picked up. I mean, my favorite shots at the Olympics are of the overhead cameras when, when the guys are running the 10,000 and the 5,000 seeing the massive amount of shoulder work that they do. There's a fantastic shot in the World Championships of, of Jenny Simpson winning. And the shot is taken from the main bleachers, right? And she is so turned that you can see the middle of her chest from a photograph taken 90 degrees from the side of her. You can see her chest as she's reaching. That's how effectively she's using her shoulders in a full sprint. So it's uh, like super exciting to see that, right? Um, I, I just, yeah, I just get excited when I think about all of these deep underlying cues that you can get that can really help a runner, right? Where how many runners are literally thinking about how am I moving my shoulders and is that helping my balance and is that helping my stack and is that helping my center of mass forward? You know, all of those things that the shoulders play a role with, right? So just like in looking at the legs, overstriding is anything ahead of your center of mass, right? So anything on the ground ahead of your center of mass is causing breaking. And there's always going to be a bit of that, right? But good stride length is created behind you. And exactly the same with the arm. When the hand comes up to the front here, all right, and in distance running, it's like a lot lower than that, right? It's like at, at, at sort of like nipple height is, is where you want to get it to. And you can only just see the top of your hands with your peripheral vision downwards, right? But the big one is, is this is the reset motion when the hand comes to the front. The prime motion in arm swing is backwards with the elbow. There used to be a style of running back uh, 50s and pre that called pulling, where it was opposite to that. The hands were lower, the hands were pulled powerfully forward. It just ended up that pullers were injured a lot they weren't great sprinters at the end of races and so on and pulling is just not a way to run anymore you still see occasionally you'll see somebody in a park doing a little jog and it's a puller and up come the arms powerfully forward and the whole upper body's moving it's quite interesting to see how we've developed that right and it's hell on your hamstrings as well all right but now it's driving so it's a quiet set in the front powerful push to the back and the faster you go, the higher you want your elbow to be at the back because that's causing that extension that you're looking for, right, uh, with, with the thighs, you know. So you're governing your knee. You pull back hard at the back. You set the knee higher in the front, right? So that, that's where that helps. So when it gets to elbow angle, you know, people talk about 90 degrees. A, a lot of top distance runners actually have a much smaller elbow angle than 90 degrees. They have a much tighter elbow angle. Their forearm top of their forearm is much closer to their bicep, all right? Uh, it is absolutely okay and even recommended that the smallest elbow angle is when you peak in the front, when you extend to the front, that's your smallest elbow angle. As you're going down, you're opening your elbow, but you're controlling it. That's where I talk about the glass tutu, right? You imagine you've got a glass tutu on your hip line. You don't want to break that glass tutu with your hand. For the majority of your arm swing, you want the tip of your elbow to be the longest lever. 
of the process. You don't want the, the outside of your hand to be the longest lever because that's going to bring your cadence down and that's going to make your ground contact time longer and that's also going to make uh, the pressure that you put into the ground early into your stance phase too high, okay? So you kind of want to imagine your arm, your elbow forming these arc, right? As opposed to the forearm getting in the way on the way down and having that forearm go real low and that hand go down real low, which is what sprinters do. But they do it a lot more when they're accelerating out of the blocks. And when they start to do upright sprinting, their arm angle becomes more contained. And even 400 meter runners seldom get that elbow angle at peak extension at the back more than 90 degrees. Very few of them do. And when they do, they, they struggle to accelerate when they have that big arm action or, you know, come back from to respond to surges and stuff like that. Now, very importantly with the wrists is you want to keep the wrists firm and the hands loose. A lot of people keep the hands tight, but the wrists loose, you know, and that again, that's why we do that drill in run form called, you know, the bladed hands. Um, so that people get a sense, uh, my greatest recollection, the greatest blade hand runner of all time was Carl Lewis, right? He had those outstretched hands that would come right past his ears, right? And when he went back, it was just like a buzzsaw going straight back, just beautifully like cleaving through the air. It was like classic, you know, uh, Greek god running, you know? But it was a good example of firm wrists, right? But most distance runners now have this loose hand action, all right? And they have their thumb on their forefinger. They're not holding on to their thumb. Again, that creates tension, all right? And then a nice little secret clue is it's really so much easier to control your foot strike by using the palm of your hand, right? So if you overpronate, you might find that your opposite hand is doing this. It's, it's pronating tremendously, right? And the, and the opposite foot doing that. So I have most of my runners, once I feel that their ankles are strong enough and so on, I feel like if the thumb is slightly inside of the, of the, of the little thing of the pinky, right? So just turning those hands slightly inwards. Hands on top, I mean, uh, back of your hands pointing to the sky, disaster. Worst disaster is if you're an external rotator, is to have those hands facing upwards, palms to the sky. That's a disaster as well. So just slightly turned in so that when you get straight back, that hand is perfectly upright. The thumb is on top. The thumbnail is pointing to the sky, all right? And the, the side of your hand with your pinky, that outside of your hand, your carotid chop angle, all right, that's pointing straight down. But as you come forward, it's slightly turned inwards. And I can just see myself with runner after runner after runner, just when they set up, just tweaking their hands, getting them slightly twisted inwards is a, is a really key component, right? So um, again, not something you want to think about a lot, but it's one of those things where you set it, you get a picture in your head, you know how your hands want to move, right? Because again, from a, from a, a coach who's working on run forms perspective, telltale signs of of the shoulder being stuck or something going on with not getting further back is opening of the elbow because they are running out of space for the for the knee to come up. And so they create more dwell time by opening the elbow or they try and get more extension, which they're not getting out of their shoulders they should by flicking their wrist down. So you get a lot of runners run with these flicky wrists where they're trying to get back with the hand, you know? It's just fascinating to what I think the upper body is your almost your biggest tell when you're working on mechanics. You can pick up so much from how, how you know, the shoulders, uh, both in terms of 
vertical oscillation and forward and back, right? Uh, elbows, wrists, hands work, okay? And then taking that tension out of the fingers and the hands. Yeah, I think it's important to discuss a little bit more about stability, right? Because stability is your ability to reduce unwanted or excessive movement, right? And so when we understand that concept, and I think especially when it comes to the hips, then there's been so much talk about that, right? I've got to get my side butt, my glute meats stronger, right? And while that's true, I think we tend to neglect the rest of the chain because it all has to work together, right? So I'll give a, a couple examples of this. Uh, one, if we're in a half kneeling position and we have a kettlebell up, so we're grabbing it by the horns, the bottom of the kettlebell is facing up, and we're slowly pressing that weight in a half kneeling position to the sky. That is going to really test the stability of the shoulder, but very localized, right? So we're really looking at the shoulder itself. And a lot of, I like to use that one if I'm especially working with somebody in person, just because they, they say, oh, it's my, my grip. My grip's not good. Well, that's really coming from your shoulder, okay? So that's the first thing is understanding the difference between, say, your grip and your stability, okay, through the shoulder. Now, once we look at something like that more localized, and then once we do something like that, we may want to look at the overall, what I call athlete anchor, right? So how is it tying in with everything else? So a test that I just gave to some performance athletes last week was the renegade row. And very interesting that with the renegade row, you're in a push-up position, except for your hands are now on kettlebells. And ultimately, I like to have in 20% approximately body weight in each or under each hand, okay, for the kettlebell. Now, can they row with a single arm in that position? So your feet would be wide and the kettlebells are narrow to your midline. And what you tend to see is that that shoulder that has trouble leading during your run gait will have trouble providing stability there. In other words, you got to push down into the ground with, for me, it's my left shoulder. As you roll back with your right arm, that is really testing that left shoulder. It's the arm that's down that's really being challenged, not the arm that's rowing so much. Now for swimmers, it's a really nice ipsilateral test as well, because it goes left shoulder, left hip to really keep yourself stable. We don't want to see that the hips are swiveling at all. Okay, so the hips must stay neutral. And that's a quick way to find out integratively or throughout your entire chain, how is this working for me, right? Um, so what I look at there is if the hips can stay nice and set and if they are able to do equal rows on both sides, okay, with, with, that, with that weight. Now, some people, they might have to start higher elevation and get to the point where they are even doing something like that off of a bench so that they can maintain that hip control. And they may have to start with dumbbells to make it uh, less challenging on the stability in the shoulders. And in fact, I suggest that most people do start that way. But the point is that we are looking at both that local stability, that localized stability in the shoulder, and then also how does it integrate or how does it connect with the hips in that position. So the serratus anterior is a muscle that you and I have talked a lot about, and I think it has to be in the shoulder conversation. So that's 
that superhero muscle that is just part of your riblets, right? So you can see that muscle really built up and on superhero characters, we've talked about that before, but it's going to protract the scapula, but it's also going to provide that upward rotation in the scapula. So I think a missing link in getting really good uh, shoulder to lead and really good thoracic rotation is the serratus anterior. I consider that muscle to be part of the core. That's to me where I may differ than some other strength coaches, but I incorporate that with core work predominantly. And so really in our run form program, but when we have these drills where you are pushing the band away from you with resistance and you're getting those gaps to protract, or we have various movements where we are not just contracting, but reacting to the bands, that is all a lead up to start to really get that stability, the mobility in the shoulders, start to connect it with the rest of the body. That's, that's why we are giving drills on your feet in our run form uh, exercises, especially in the banded dynamics. And also why in week four, we introduce body blades, what you're talking about with the form drills, because now we've had a chance to really get those muscles set, connecting, working together. Now we can start to work on the body blades and really use the arms for the balance, the overall um, cadence that we want to be able to maintain with those shoulders uh, leading the way, so to speak. And I think I'll close off with, with this, Bobby, but if you are talking about cadence, I think that's a good conversation to touch on if our shoulders or arm chain, if that slows down because we are pulling along and, and why that tends to cause more injuries, why that tends to uh, affect our gait. In other words, slow our gait down, right? So what the arms are doing, the hips are following with. I, I'd love to have you finish with, with that part. Uh, that is fantastic, Matt, because I had a, uh, a set of six points here that I wanted to measure, to mention, to close with, and one of them was clearly cadence, right? So it's uh, probably the second biggest determinant of, of cadence is elbow angle, right? So you close that elbow angle, um, then your cadence will automatically come up. And, and people need to remember that your, your brain is much closer to your shoulders and your arms and your hands, and they are much more neurally rich than your legs are. And so they can lead a process, right? So if you synthetically or cognitively, when you're running hills, focus on hitting your elbows back, that will improve your performance on the hill. That'll increase your leg spring stiffness. That'll increase your cadence, right? All of those things play into that. And, and to just even say more than what you said, you know, when you start connecting things, all right, and you start moving from a central basis, right? And your whole body's intention is to move your center of mass forward. You start to understand that any of these extraneous mom, uh, movements like elbows opening or wrists softening have an impact on your ankles, have an impact on your knees, have an impact on your hips. So what your shoulders do, all right, greatly impacts your hips. If your shoulders are operating and your elbows and your hands are operating separate from what your legs are doing, now you've got those massive power leaks going on, right? So uh, that neural rich ability with the arms in running being less fatigued than the legs and to be able to say to your arms, well, you suckers move 
the legs will go, oh God, okay, we'll follow the arms, you know? And that's what, you, what you're trying to do, right? So it's not only a conversation in, in, in economy, but it's an invisa- uh, conversation in, in performance, right? So for example, there's no better place to sort out your arm action than with hill repeats, right? It's really hard to do stupid things with your arms when you run hills because your legs are not going to let you do stupid things, right? Because you've got to stay pretty linear. You've got to be working those elbows. Otherwise, the hill's going to win, right? <laughs> and you have to shorten that cadence and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of like the conversation. You know, a lot of distance runners will swing back and they'll shut their elbow angle more on the way back, which I think is, a, is, a, is just fine. There have been great triathletes that have run like that, Gwen Jorgensen being one, Emma Moffat, another one from Australia, Olympic medalist from Beijing. They close their elbow on the way back and they have this really powerful through swing because that arm is really in that shortened position, right? So I'll often shout to a triathlete that runs economically like that, now I want big arms when you're accelerating in that last half mile or that last kilometer, right? Just let that hand come away a bit because it'll bring that knee up and it'll start to extend that stride when economy is no longer a factor. You've just got to hoof it now because a lot of a lot of athletes are so well trained, but they haven't trained how to sprint. And arms are a big part of teaching yourself to sprint as an endurance athlete. But Matt, that was absolutely amazing. I don't know if you've got one last response to that, but thanks again, buddy. You you lead me down these pathways that that bring out conversations that are unconscious for me and that I only bring out when I see an athlete. So it's very rare for me to be able to have a conversation and it would only be with you, right? So when I'm being interviewed, the interviewer doesn't know which questions to ask unless they are, you know, either biomechanists or something like that. But it's it's cool with you because you're talking about an area that I have less expertise on, but it brings out an understanding within me and how I've overcome uh, answering the questions of what I'm visually seeing with an athlete's kinematics. No, thanks, Bobby. And, you know, same, same here. But uh, I would say that my my suggestion, if you're looking at a program like Run Form with our movement library, people have asked me, hey, how come you have so much with the shoulder girdle in the movement library section? And we we added movements there. And that was because we we know that the overall program, we are looking at all of the different systems that we've already talked about on the podcast. We're going to talk about the head next, and uh, that's going to be a great conversation. But looking at how we can connect these dots, I came to realize, as I said prior in this podcast, that I think a little bit more could and should be done oftentimes with athletes in that posterior chain, but particularly in or throughout the posterior shoulder girdle. So you know, having movements there where we're really working on better external rotation, but more stability, having that effect that we want throughout our chain, it is so neurally rich through our shoulders that I think having a little bit more time that we're spending to really get that correct goes such a long ways for the rest of our cadence. And so that's where we do tend to see that geez, if I put in some more corrective exercise training, then I'm going to actually solve some problems I'm having down the chain as well. So, you know, there is a point where you've gotten, uh, as I said before, the side butt as strong as it's going to get. 
Now, where is that missing link? Well, we have to work a little bit more through our obliques, through our lateral line. We have to have better stability. Are we even starting that balance with good connections with our shoulders so we can use those arms for better balance? And so it all builds on a simple concept that any training that you do, if if it's good training, it's going to work on giving you a better balance. And that's what we try to achieve with a program like RunForm. That's why we have the order that we have. And that's why after 12 weeks, people will say, um, yeah, I can, I, I know I can have somebody like Bobby look at my run form, but I can already tell you that personally, I, after three months of doing the program was at six, um, revolutions per minute higher at six minute mile for my own running. And that's after, geez, you know, about 40 years of running, uh, consistently. Right. So it does, it does work and it, and it does connect. And I think that if we just follow a system like this, then we are going to see that effect. And so I, I do really encourage people to at least go to our movement improvement because we do get you started with some really good archetypes for each joint of your body and give you a good starting point, but it's meant to progress from there through run form. And, uh, that's, you know, that's where I'd like to leave it as far as the conversation around what really works. It's just, it's, it's establishing a really good overall balance to support your running and anything that is beyond that, that, that can actually take away from it. So I think it's really important that we talk about the proper dosing that we talk about the schedule that you can manage on a daily basis in more, uh, smaller effective doses. And that's, that's what we did with run form. So and now I feel like I'm uh, advertising it, but I can't help myself. It works. Yep, yep. So just again, Matt, this uh, good luck with the relay. Remember to push those elbows a little open on those big downhills in that in that opening leg and get those elbows a little bit away from your body. Lower your center of mass a little bit. Increase your balance so that you don't eccentrically destroy your quads in leg one so that you strong uh, in the latest stages of the event. So good luck, Matt. And thanks again for today. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bobby. I will do that. As always, thanks for listening to the run form podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola project website. Here you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was, that was awesome. Yeah.